Good afternoon to you all. It's a privilege to be here with you on a very beautiful Sabbath day in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina. You know, as we heard in the uh, telecast we just heard, we're living in certainly we're certainly living in some very sobering and prophetically significant times as we see what's happening around us in the world today. I'm going to talk about that a little bit as we get into the sermon, but before that, I want to ask you a couple of questions to get you to think. What is the most valuable thing you have ever made or created? What is the most valuable thing that you have ever made or created? And some of you like to cook and you make special desserts or special dinners. Sometimes you make uh, dresses. Sometimes you build things. Whenever our boys were little, I used to build some furniture. And I'd get out my tools on usually a Sunday afternoon or Sunday morning, nails and hammer and saw. And one of the boys would come up and say, Dad, what are you building? What are you building? So I'd cut things off and there'd be scraps laying around. And he'd get his hammer and start nailing things together and create this most intriguing <laughs> creation. But what is the most valuable thing you have ever made or created? Another question is, what is the most valuable thing you would like to create or make? What is the most valuable thing you would like to make or create? I'd like you to set that, those questions on a shelf, think about them a little bit. <clears throat> And then I want to go off in a little bit different direction, but we're going to come back to this. You know, June is a time of graduation. I've got a grandson who's graduated from high school. Doesn't seem possible. (laughs) Doesn't seem possible. But in looking around and listening to some of the graduation or commencement addresses that were given around the country, I thought it was very interesting and very instructive. The female athlete spoke to a elite girl's school up in Virginia, I think it was. And the essence of her message was she was kind of complaining about the pay gap between men athletes and women athletes. And she used a little story about Little Red Riding Hood, how girls were encouraged to walk quietly through the woods, don't get distracted, Uh, Stay on the path and don't create any waves. She said, I'm here to tell you, you need to be more like the wolf. These are young ladies. You need to be more like the wolf and demand what you want. Also, there was a disillusioned senator spoke to the Harvard Law School. And he's not happy with what's happening in the world or in this country. And he says, you know, I think we may have hit bottom because it can't get any worse. Now, this is to uplift and encourage graduates. What was interesting was he said, maybe I need to listen to you. Maybe you need to give me some advice. He said that uh, we're witnessing history today. I think we saw some of that aspect in the telecast we just saw about a nation and a world descending into chaos. But he said, I think we've about hit bottom, but the good news is I don't think we can go any lower. 
This was not exactly encouraging. He said, America without the rule of law will no longer be be America because values are more important than politics, which I think is on target. Values are more important than politics. Coming back from Pentecost, I was up in the Washington, D.C. area and drove down the Shenandoah Valley and stopped at uh, Washington and Lee University and it's right next to VMI, Virginia Military Academy. And I walked into the library just to check a few things and it was a little video playing that Rex Tillerson, the former Secretary of State, former CEO of ExxonMobil, spoke to the graduates, the cadets at VMI. The topic of his lecture was quite interesting. He says, we are facing in this country a growing crisis of ethics and integrity among our nation's leaders. We're facing a crisis of of, uh, integrity and ethics. He says, if we don't confront this crisis, America's democracy is entering its twilight zone. In other words, we may be heading down the road to oblivion. And this is what he was telling the young cadets at VMI. But this isn't news. This isn't news. I came across another article written in 2012 entitled The State of the Anglosphere. And what it's talking about is what's happening in America, Britain, Canada, Australia. And we have um, some Aussies here with us today. And so we share certain things in common. It said at that time, this is 2012, six years ago, a study had done at that time said 70% of Americans saw the country heading in the wrong direction. And dissatisfaction levels were about 70%. So this is the world that we're living in today. It said many foreigners saw the Anglosphere culture as decadent, as decadent. In other words, not up to the par of other non-Western countries. Described America's democracy in Washington as dysfunctional. That was in 2012. We're now 2018. It hasn't seemed to have got much better. And they described the Anglosphere nations as not just inclined, not just declining, but ready to slide off the edge of the cliff. This is how foreigners look at what's happening in America and in Australia and Canada and other places. And when we look at the news today, and this is about all the bad news I want to talk about. (laughs) When we look at the news today, we see divorce skyrocketing. We see drug addiction among young people as well as adults, a war on families, a coarseness and vulgarity in our communications and the media. They're talking about criminalization of Christianity. In other words, if you read the Bible in school or you do things like that, you're subject to arrest or persecution. As we think about these things, can you identify any common denominator in what we were just talking about? Can you identify any common denominator in these concerns expressed about American culture, about the culture of the Western world, about a crisis of integrity and ethics, what would you pick out as being a common denominator 
in all of these concerns. You know, observers that look at these things say the West is suffering from a moral disorder called a lack of character. A moral disorder called a lack of character. What I'd like to do in the sermon today is show how all of this relates to you and to me as individuals have been called out of this world to prepare for a coming kingdom of God. And we know and have read numerous times Revelation 5.10 that we're to become kings and priests to reign on this earth with Jesus Christ when he returns and to show the world a better way to point the world in a way that really does work and to help people understand how we got to the point where we are today and how we're going to get out of this. Because if you're appointed as a king or a priest, a civil or a religious leader of a country, of a city, of a nation, a part of the world, it's going to be your job. You know, this... uh, Disillusioned senator was telling the graduates at Harvard Law School, thankfully you're just about to graduate (laughs) and you're graduating just in the nick of time to help us solve our problems. But you know, they don't have the foundation that you and I are being given today. They're not going to be able to solve the problems. And yet Jesus Christ is coming back to give you a crown to give you the opportunity to begin working with people and pointing them in the right direction, a direction that's really going to solve their problems. I've entitled the sermon this afternoon, The Importance of Character. The Importance of Character. And I've also given it a subtitle. The subtitle is Remembering and Applying the Lessons of History. Remembering and applying the lessons of history. So I want to talk about what is character, how important is character. These are subtitles or topics that we're going to be covering in the sermon. Why character is lacking today in one of the most educated societies in the world. How do you build character? What happens to nations that destroy character. Now let's go back to the question I asked in the very beginning. What is the most valuable thing that you have ever created or that you would like to create? And the answer to the question I would give you is character. Because we're all building character of one sort or another. It's either going to be good, godly character or it's going to be something else. And the challenge is, what decisions are you going to make? And what are you going to build? What are you building now? And what would you like to build? Now, why would I give this a subtitle of Remembering and Applying Lessons of History? Why focus on history today? Because we all know that history is dry and dull and boring about dead people. <laughs> about people who don't live anymore. 
You know, we live in a 21st century, uh, a time of laptops and computers and the Internet. What could books have to do with our lives today? I mean, this is some of the thinking that goes around today. Very basically this, one of the first lessons of history is that if we don't remember the lessons of history, we wind up repeating the mistakes of history. If we don't remember the lessons of history, we wind up repeating the mistakes of history because we wind up doing the same thing over and over again. I thought it was interesting that the Europeans don't want to get out of this uh, nuclear agreement with Iran. They want to stay in it because they want to keep their economic uh, agreements with the people in Iran. They tend tend to stay. Yeah, come on. They stand to make a whole lot of money if they don't get out of that agreement and they can still sell things to the Iran people. You go back, what, 40, 50, 60 years ago, there were people in Britain that wanted to appease Hitler because they were selling things to the Germans. So if we don't learn from history, we wind up doing the same things over and over and over that don't seem to work very well. So we live in an ahistorical age today. We're not into history that much. But we wind up repeating the mistakes of history because we don't learn from history. As one source I was looking at uh, preparing for the sermon mentioned, that we need to think historically. What happens to nations? What has happened to nations when their morals decline? What happens to people and what happens to nations when they turn away from biblical values, what are the consequences? Is it really freedom or are there very negative consequences? So we need to be thinking about history. We need to think historically and remember the lessons of history. You know, the word remember is used about 30 times in the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. About 30 times. It's used about 35 times in the prophets. Remember this. Remember that. The term don't forget, again, is used probably 30 some times in the Old Testament. So God makes a big point about remembering, remembering. Don't forget. You know, the book of Deuteronomy is also called a book of remembrance. A book of remembrance, because Moses is telling the Israelites, it's the second generation. You know, their parents died in the wilderness because they turned away from God. And just before the second generation goes into the promised land, Moses said, remember, remember, remember. You know, the Old Testament is filled with what is called Deuteronomistic history. That sounds like a big term, but all it is is, If you don't obey God's laws, there are consequences. But if you do obey God's laws, there are blessings. That's Deuteronomistic history. That's that's a lesson in the Old Testament. It's basically pretty much the same as the New Testament. So let's look at several things this afternoon. As I asked in the very beginning, what is the most valuable thing that you have ever created or you would like to create? It's going to be your character, how you think, what you do, what makes you you. 
Let's define a couple terms quickly. What is character? If you want to build it, you need to know what it is. You need to know how to go about it. Character is defined as the mental and moral traits of a person. The moral and mental traits of a person is what makes you you. It's the qualities that make you who you are. Honest or dishonest? Having empathy where you care for other people or you don't care at all for other people. You just do whatever you want to do. Diligence. You're either very diligent or perhaps lazy. (laughs) This is part of our character. Patience. You're either patient with people or you're impatient with people. Sometimes we're in between. Courage. Either you're courageous or you're not courageous. You're afraid of things. But this is what makes a person real. It's their character qualities. Let me give you a couple of other descriptions of character. You can get these things out of books on quotes. Character is what you are in the dark when nobody's around to see what you do. It's what you let yourself do or what you don't let yourself do. It makes up your character. Character is revealed by the jokes that you tell or the jokes that you don't laugh at. I mean, you come to the conclusion that's not funny. That's vulgar. By the things that you say reveal your character. Another definition or description, when the character of a person is not clear, look at the people that they spend time with. When the character of a person is not clear, notice who they hang around with. Notice who their friends are. And that will tell you something about the person. Another description, when houses or rooms, your bedroom or your car, reflects on your character. Is it a mess? Is it organized? Is it clean? Is it dirty? That reflects on the person or on the nature of the person. Let's look at a couple of scriptures that underline what we're talking about here. Go to Proverbs chapter 27. And the reason for going through this is if we can get a very clear idea of what character involves, then we can begin to work on building the kind of character that God wants to see. In Proverbs 27, verse 19, it says, As water, as in water, face reflects face. In other words, you look into a, a very still pool of water. You can see yourself. So that's the analogy. So a man's heart or a person's heart reveals the man or reveals the person, reveals what we talk about, what we think about, what our actions. These are all things that reveal who we are. And if we're sensitive to these things, what we talk about, what we do, what our actions are, reveals who we are inside. In Matthew 12, verse 34, Matthew 12, verse 34, you can jot that down, maybe look at it later. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. 
Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. In other words, what we say, what we do, what we laugh at, what we don't laugh at, uh, our priorities, things that we talk about that are really important to us, these reflect who we are. Finally, turn back to 1 Samuel. We learn what God's priorities are and what, how God operates and what he's looking for. It's where Samuel is approaching David's parents, looking for David. And David has some older, more impressive brothers physically. God looks on the heart. In other words, our thoughts, our actions, our motives, our priorities are going to be a lot more important than the appearance. Saul was very impressive. He was a tall, apparently good-looking guy, powerful, head and shoulders above everybody else. But Saul had some very serious weaknesses character-wise. But God chose to work with David. He apparently was smaller. Um, But he had a set of priorities that we'll talk about a little bit later that was most important to God. So what is character? It's what's in our heart. It's what comes out of our mouth, what is reflected by the things that we do, the things that we say, the things that we think about. So that's character. How important is character? You know, in today's world, appearance seems to count for a lot more. But I came across a book a number of years ago entitled American Generalship. The subtitle was Character is Everything. Character is everything. It's written by a historian who interviewed, I think, about a hundred generals and admirals, about a thousand officers, and he asked them, what is the most important quality that a person needs to become a leader? He's talking basically in the military, but this could be in any other phase of life. And the bottom line was the most important thing is character. The most important thing is character. And the things that contribute to character are education. You've got to know your field if you're going to be a general. If you're going to be a musician, you need to know the subject. If you're going to teach various subjects, you need to know what you're talking about. So education is important. Knowledge of the field that you're in, courage, decisiveness. You can't lead if you can't make up your mind. Well, I don't know what to do. If somebody comes up and offers you marijuana, offers you something you know you shouldn't have, well, I'm not sure what I should do. You should be able to say, no, thank you. I'm not interested. See you later. If somebody gets you in a compromising situation, well, I'm not sure what I should do. I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, but you know, you've got to be decisive. You've got to be decisive. You know, I grew up in a school in the Midwest, in, in a town in the Midwest. I was involved with Cub Scouts because we learned how to tie knots and build fires and do this and do that. But you know, I made a conscious decision as I got into high school. A lot of the guys were going off to Boy Scouts and Boy Scout camp, and I decided I'm not going to go to Scout camp because I know what goes on there. And I didn't want to get involved with what I knew was going on. I was a member of a church, and the church had a summer camp. 
And I went there as a camper for a couple of years, became a counselor later. But we weren't doing the things that I knew was going on at the Boy Scout camp. But I made a conscious decision of not wanting to get involved with something I knew was going to pull in a wrong way. So to, to lead, and again, with character, you need to make decisive decisions. Selflessness, in other words, you're willing to sacrifice to get a job done. You're willing to sacrifice. Not everybody's willing to do that. These are all aspects of character. You're willing to seek advice. You're willing to seek advice. So these are a number of things. You also have to learn to delegate wisely. I'm just going to give everybody else jobs to do. But if you don't delegate wisely, the jobs may not get done. So these are aspects of character, and this was all entailed or all um, dealt with in this book, American Generalship. Another phrase I came across was ability will get you to the top. You know, you're smart, you can make quick decisions, but ability may not keep you there if you don't have character. In other words, ability will get you to the top, but it's character that will keep you there in most cases, unless people attack you, and then that's, that's another story. Many people fall from positions of responsibility because of a lack of character. And we're watching this play out in the news today with various individuals. But character is important not just for individuals. Character is important for nations. Looking up some information on the causes of the fall of the Roman Empire. You can do this on the Internet. Just plug in causes for the fall of the Roman Empire. A number of these causes, and different people have different lists, but in this one particular list, it said moral decline was one of the causes. Moral decline, the immorality of a number of the emperors. They were just doing things that were really weird. There's one emperor that delighted in dressing up like a woman at the gladiatorial games. He would walk in and with all his fancy dresses and sit down. And apparently it irritated people. They didn't like it. And there were other things that were an awful lot worse. But this was an example of a nation, a country, actually an empire that was going down the tubes. Political corruption among the leaders. Political corruption among the leaders. Apparently the Praetorian Guard in many cases said, we're going to put this emperor in and we're going to put this one out. And people knew it was all corrupt. Another cause was the decline of ethics and values. That life was cheap. Infanticide was very common at those times. When you're fighting in the arena, killing beasts, killing people. Life was very cheap. And these were some of the causes for the fall of the Roman Empire. The cruelty, the perverted view of right and wrong. But another leading cause they listed, and this was sobering. It said the antagonism between the Senate and the emperor. What's in the news today? The antagonism between Congress and the president, and they're just fighting each other. And this tends to destroy the morale of people. 
So nations that begin to lose any concept of moral character wind up going down the tubes. This is one of the lessons of history. And if we're not thinking historically, we're watching things happening in our country today that are pointing towards a world descending into chaos, as we just heard. All these problems, the causes of the fall of the Roman Empire, are symptoms of a moral disorder, this lack of character. It destroys people, it destroys nations, and this is really one of the lessons of history. You know, when you read Isaiah chapter 1, it talks about a whole nation that is sick from head to toe. It's talking about the end-time Israelite nations. 2 Timothy 3 talks about the time of the end. Things are going to get very, very, very difficult. And a lot of the problems that are listed there, the brutality, uh, the hatred, uh, all those things are really character qualities that are coming home to roost in a country. So character is extremely important in a personal way and also in a national way. And one of the things I came across in preparing the sermon, when you ask the question, why is there a character crisis today? Why is there a character crisis today in America, Canada, Australia, Britain, and many other places around the Western world. What has led to this sad situation? Because we're going to be dealing with people in the coming kingdom of God. They're going to want to know, well, how did this happen? You know, we were pretty nice people. A lot of us went to church, and a lot of us tried to treat our neighbors nicely. Why is this happening? Why did it happen? What happened to us? You know, in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, again, this Deuteronomistic history, God says there, if you obey my laws, you are going to be blessed as individuals, as a, as a country, as a people. Blessings are linked with obedience to the laws of God. Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28, but it also says if you turn away, if you despise my laws, my principles, my guidelines, then there's going to be serious consequences, including... Your nation is going to go down the tubes, go into captivity in some form or other. These are going to be the consequences. Notice in Hosea, let's go to Hosea chapter 8. Again, this is beamed at the so-called Anglosphere, the Israelite nations, but it applies to anybody else that does the same thing. Hosea chapter 8. And you could read through the whole book, actually, or the whole chapter. In Hosea chapter 8, in verse 1, it says, Set the trumpet to your mouth, he shall come like an eagle against the house of the Lord, because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. And talks about verse 3, Israel has rejected the good, and an enemy will pursue him. Our consequences are going to come because we have transgressed and rebelled against the laws of God. God says, don't do this, don't do that. And we're doing it today and say, well, but we're free. You know, we're enlightened. We've got all kinds of things that we can do. We don't have to be limited by religion or all this old stuff in the Bible. 
But Hosea says your consequences are going to come because you have rejected the law of God. In verse um, 7 and 8, it says, They have sown the wind and reaped the whirlwind. This is talking about the Israelite nations that have turned away from God. They've sown the wind and they're going to reap the whirlwind. What we're reaping today, you know, without a perspective from history, it looks like, well, this is just happening. But it's happening for reasons. We're reaping what has been sown for the last 50, 60, 70 years or more. They sow the wind, they reap the whirlwind. Down in verse 12, it says, I have written for him, talking about these Israelite nations, the great things of my law. You go back to our founding fathers and people that came to this country. They came for religious freedom in many cases. They brought Bibles with them. And they tried to live by those guidelines as much as they understood. But we're not doing that today. We're not doing that today. I've written for him the great things of my law, but they were considered a strange thing. And when you tell people that you're starting to keep the Sabbath or keeping the holy days in the Bible, what do they tell you? What do they say to you? Oh, isn't that nice? They said, are you crazy? Don't you know all that stuff's been done away with? Jesus came to free you from all these things. And you're going to get back into that bondage and keep those things? This should not be that hard to understand. Verse 14, for Israel has forgotten his maker, has built temples. Judah has multiplied fortified cities, but I will send fire upon his cities, and it shall devour his palaces. There are going to be consequences because you've forgotten the law of God. So why are we in a crisis today? came across another book entitled The Death of Character. The Death of Character, how you, um, moral education in an age without God or evil. It's kind of a play on words to a book that uh, Nietzsche wrote back in the 1880s. He was a German philosopher. He wrote a thesis called Beyond Good and Evil, that we need to move beyond these antiquated concepts of good and evil and just do your own thing. This is back in the 1880s. These ideas came to this country eventually. Uh, He felt that might was right. If you felt you wanted to do something, you should do it. This is where some of these ideas come from. They just didn't come out of the blue. Nietzsche forgot God. He wanted to dump traditional morality uh, and focus on this world and forget about the next world. You know, nothing ahead. You need, you need to focus on what's happening now. The author of this particular book mentions the reason for the death of character. And I thought this was quite interesting. Is it the social and cultural conditions and institutions? Social and cultural conditions and institutions that make character possible don't exist any longer. Don't exist any longer. He talks about schools and churches and social organizations no longer promote important biblical character qualities. Schools today don't promote those things. Churches today, in many cases, don't promote those things. 
You know, when I grew up and was going to school, we were told very plainly, don't swear, don't take God's name in vain, don't steal, don't push people, <laughs> don't get in fights. But now if you tell somebody those things, you're trying to live their life for them. And we've shifted away from these things. Now, some schools still do, some churches still do. But, you know, the Boy Scouts have now approved um, homosexuals to be counselors at summer camps. That's like putting the fox in the, fen ho- in the, in the hen house. <laughs> you just don't do things like that if you've got any common sense. But we're doing those things. The author also mentioned the demise of character begins with the destruction of beliefs. The demise of character begins when you destroy people's beliefs that there is such a thing as right, there is such a thing as wrong. And when you destroy those beliefs and those convictions, if you make a decision, I'm not going to do that because that's wrong. And then somebody said, well, how do you know it's wrong? That's just, in your, that's just your opinion. And if teachers confirm that and preachers go along with that, then you're f- sowing the seeds of destruction that's going to be, really ruin people's lives and ruin the nation that you live in. Another book I came across was entitled Crimes of Educators or Crimes of the Educators. Crimes of the Educators, how utopians use government, use the government to destroy America's children. And it talks about a number of these ideas that have permeated our educational establishment in this country. Came from European social reformers that wanted to get rid of God, get rid of the Bible, and promote secular ideas, that there's no God, there's no right and wrong, it's just whatever you think is right. And when you destroy a child's belief in God, in the Bible, and Judeo-Christian values, one author said, this is nothing short of cultural genocide. Cultural genocide, that we're destroying our own culture. And some, some might say, well, you know, big deal. What's, what's the story with that? But, you know, much of our values in the Constitution, many of the values that people lived by 100 years ago, 150 years ago, 200 years ago, they came out of the Bible. They came out of the Bible. These people didn't understand everything theologically. <laughs> Most of them believed there was a God. Most of them believed the Bible was the word of God. And they tried to live by the Ten Commandments that were there. And for those of you that are into English literature, who was it? I think it was Samuel Hawthorne that wrote a book, The Scarlet Letter. This came out of New England, where the Puritans were. And there was an adultery situation where the pastor had committed adultery with one of the ladies in the congregation. He didn't own up to it, and she she didn't blame him. But she was judged by the community, had to wear a big scarlet A on her blouse. That would be hate actions today. But this is what happened 150 years ago. Because we had a different set of values at that time, for the most part. And it was the biblical 
values that gave people those moral values that they operated on. What was the result? What has been the result? Again, if you're parents, you're dealing with this with your kids in school. What has been the result of the secular education that has permeated our society today when you look at it? When kids are told there's no God, when kids are told there's no purpose in life, when kids are told you aren't any more significant than animal, what's been the result? And why is suicide one of the leading causes of death among young people? Why is depression so visible in young people today? It all relates to these values that have been destroyed. Why are kids taking drugs and adults when there's no purpose for human life? You see the mess the world is in? Why not forget it? Why not look for an exit? This is what's happening in our country today. Now, a lot of these ideas, I think I mentioned this before, are promoted by people like John Dewey. You read a little bit about Dewey. He was a very influential person in American education. But his parents were Calvinists. His parents were very religious. And he wanted to get rid of that influence. Get rid of God, that there's no absolutes. There's, uh, we need to focus on a more secular way of life. It's going to be freeing us from all these limitations. His influence has permeated education. There's a group of people that came over called the Frankfurt School from Germany. They were socialists. They wanted to undermine the capitalistic system in the United States. And their approach was introduce sex education in grade schools, get rid of Judeo-Christian values. And these things also permeated our society today. And their goal was get into the institutions, get control of the colleges, get control of the schools, get control of the judiciary, get control of governmental apparatuses, and then we basically just take over the country. Because they want to get rid of the negative aspects of capitalism. And this is what we're dealing with today. We're in a situation where you can't pray in school. You can't read the Bible in school. That there are no absolute values, that everybody has to figure it out for themselves. And we bring this back for just a minute to the lessons of history. Because people today think this is wonderful. This is progressive. <laughs> We're making progress. There's an article in the Wall Street Journal this morning. Somebody did a study of Catholic schools versus public schools. And the conclusion was in Catholic schools where there is discipline. Again, I'm not talking about theology. I'm just talking about practical things. Where there's discipline, uh, where your students are told you need to be respectful need to be nice to people. You don't get in fights. You don't get in arguments. You do your job. do your studies. The results were that in Catholic schools, the kids were happier. The kids were peaceful. The grades were better. And things went better. Now, they could be studying and they could do another study on other church-related schools because you're going to find some of the same things, discipline, respect, as opposed to just uh, everybody doing whatever they want. 
But the author concludes, don't underestimate the power of religion to positively positively influence a child's behavior. Now, we wouldn't back up you know, promoting Catholicism, but in terms of religion, the values that you find in the Bible, to say this is right and this is wrong, there'll be blessings for doing this and consequences for doing that. These are things that we need to be remember as lessons of history. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 30. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 15. It's interesting that God gives us free moral agency. He gives us the opportunity to make decisions. And then we have to live with the decisions that we make. But God wants us to learn from these decisions that we make. Deuteronomy 30, beginning about verse 15. Again, Moses is talking with the Israelites, the second generation. They came out of Egypt. They saw what happened to their parents. And Moses is bringing this up to them just before they go into the promised land. He says, think about these things. Remember, see, I've set before you today life and good, death and evil. There is such a thing as right. There is such a thing as wrong. See, I've said before you, life and death, uh, death and evil, in that I command you this day to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, keep his commandments, his statutes, and his judgments, that you may live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you go in to possess. Verse 19, I call heaven and earth to witness today against you, that I've set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life. Choose life. Choose the things that really work. Remember the lessons of history. Remember what happens to people and what happens to nations that turn away from fundamental values that even history says work. Remember those things. Remember those things. Why do we need to remember those things? Go to Isaiah chapter 30. Isaiah chapter 30, verses 20 and 21. Because we have a future. We've been called to be part of the coming kingdom of God. We've got something that we can prepare for if we're willing to come out of this world and learn a different way of life and build the kind of character that God is looking for. Isaiah 30 in verses 20 and 21, latter part of verse 20. Let's read the whole verse. Though the Lord gives you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teachers will not be moved into a corner anymore. But your eyes will see your teachers, your ears will hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk you in it. Whenever you turn to the right hand, whenever you turn to the left, walk in this way. See, we've been called to change the world. We've been called to reverse the downward trend that we're seeing in society today. But you're going to have to know what you're talking about. Somebody says, well, how do you know? Because I'm a member of God's family. I've learned the lessons of history. I know what happens. I've seen what happens if we've got our eyes open. And this is the way to go. So why do we have a crisis today? Because we've shifted away from some very fundamental values. We've literally destroyed 
and degraded those fundamental values. And we're reaping the whirlwind that has been sown, has been growing for the last several decades, last number of decades. So as I mentioned at the very beginning, we need to remember that character, your character, is the most important thing, the most valuable thing that you will ever build. So how do you build godly character? What do you do to build godly character? What have other people done to build and shape the character of our nation that made it different a couple hundred years ago to what it is today? Let's look at a couple things. Again, reviewing very quickly, character is the the qualities that make you who you are. Honesty, humility, courage, concern for others, patience. You know, one of the gentlemen that I taught with in Ambassador College years ago, he said every child should have a, a pet. Every child should have a pet because you learn to be patient with the pet. <laughs> you learn to treat it gently. You can't throw it against the wall like you could a toy. You don't tramp on it. You, you treat it gently. You know, one of the things they do with juvenile delinquents that are very violent, they give them a pet, and they develop a bond with the pet, and they, they develop some concern, not in every case, but it's, it's a therapy that they try. And you've got to do things like that whenever you don't believe in biblical values. You, <laughs> you reach for anything that you can use. But how do you build these qualities? Remember, character is who you are when no one is watching. Character is who you are, what you do, what you think about, uh, how you act, what you say when nobody is really watching. First of all, we need to understand what God is looking for. If we want to build godly character, we need to find out what he is looking for, what he wants to see in us. Let's look at a couple of scriptures. Isaiah 66 and verse 2. Isaiah 66 and verse 2. We can break in the latter part of the verses. But on this one or on this person will I look, God says. On him or her who is poor. Now, we probably all qualify for that one. But that's not what it's talking about. It means a humble person. It means a humble person. A teachable person. It's not a person that says, I know, I know, I know. I don't need any advice. No, a person that's willing to listen to advice. They're humble. A person has a contrite spirit. The contrite spirit is, how can I change? What do I need to change to do better? As opposed to, you see what you get, or you get what you see. That's who I am? That's tough. (laughs) That's just who I am. Now, God is looking for somebody that is malleable, somebody that has a contrite spirit, that's willing to learn and change. And finally, a person who trembles at my word. They read what it says, and they don't argue with it. They read what it says, and they don't argue with it. I want to do it that way. I want to do it that way. This is what God is looking for in individuals who he can then 
give eternal life to, who can then work with other human beings gently, lovingly, patiently, but firmly. That's the kind of person he's going to need. Hosea chapter 6 and verse 6. And these are three scriptures you can link together, memorize them, don't forget them. Hosea 6 and verse 6. God says, For I desire mercy and not sacrifice, and knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. God is a merciful God. One of the reasons that we correct our children, one of the reasons that God corrects us, he's merciful, he forgives, but he wants us to grow. You can ask God, correct me in mercy. Sometimes as parents, we don't do it in mercy. We do it out of frustration. And then our kids have to learn to forgive us for some of the things that we do and say. But God says, I want mercy. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. In some religions, people do whatever they do, and then they go confess to a priest, and then they go back out and do it again. (laughs) That's not what it's all about. God wants us to change. He wants us to grow. And a knowledge of God, more than burnt offerings, he wants us to learn. Here's the book. Here's the instruction. He wants us to learn from that. Let's go to one other scripture, Micah, chapter 6 and verse 8. Micah, chapter 6 and verse 8. Again, these are things that God is very plain, very clear. It says, He has shown you, O man, what is good and what the Lord God require of you. To do justly, to treat people justly. To love mercy, to love mercy. Sometimes we get very self-righteous, or we can get self-righteous. Well, I wouldn't do that. Or I don't think you should do that. We need to love mercy. Somebody says, I'm sorry. Encourage them. Well, that's good. That's good. And let's move on in a different direction. Do justly love mercy and walk humbly with your God. To walk humbly before God. God, I want to do things your way. I want to do things right. These are goals that we can set for ourselves. Acts 13, verse 22, you can turn there later. It mentions that David was a man after God's own heart. And God says, one of the reasons he's a man after my own heart is that he will do my will. He will do my will. He's not arguing. He's not out in left field doing his own thing. That's one of the problems of the book of Judges, that everybody was doing what in their own mind was right. And all it did was lead to chaos. That's what we're seeing today. But David was a man after her own heart. Esther was a woman after God's own heart. Ruth was a woman after God's own heart. They had qualities that God recorded in the scriptures for us to learn from. And there are other people down through history that tried to emulate these people that you can read about and learn about. Make a very interesting study. If we can develop the attitude that David had, and I would encourage you to read through Psalm 119, read it some Friday night, some Sabbath morning, but notice the attitude that comes through 
in Psalm 119. You know, it's long, but if you're reading for attitudes and perspective, David had this attitude, God, show me. Show me. Help me understand your way. Help me understand your principles. Help me see the big picture. This is an attitude that God can work with. And if you develop that same attitude, God, you've called me. You're molding and fashioning me for some purpose. Help me understand. Open doors where you want me to go. Close them where where I don't need to go. Mold me and fashion me for what you want to do with me. And you're going to be in for a really exciting ride. You might gripe and complain (laughs) once in a while. Well, I, I didn't quite mean it that way. Do you have to let me do this? What did Jesus say right before his crucifixion? Is there any other way? Is there any other way to do this? And then he said, no, your will. I'm going to do what your will is. You know, this is what God is looking for. He wants to help us develop character. You might want to also think about, read about and think about, read through the Proverbs. These are recorded for our instruction. You know, I wasn't converted before I came to the church, but I did read Proverbs through my college years. And it kept me out of trouble because I read a wise person does this and a stupid person does this. And you don't want to be stupid. But you began to realize there are two different ways. I think I roamed in college with one of the wildest kids on campus. And people kind of, they knew who we were. They knew our character. They said, you guys room together? (laughs) And you get along with each other? We did. I wasn't judging him, and he wasn't judging me. He did his thing, (laughs) and I did mine. But I began to see some things. It seemed like my parents got so much smarter after I went to college. Because I began to realize why they told me certain things not to do. And why they told me other things, do this. Now, they weren't converted either, but they did understand certain things from this book. These are lessons of history. These are lessons of history that we can share with other people. But read through Psalm 119 and pick up the attitude, show me, help me. Guide me, lead me, so that you can use me. Spend some time in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Sermon on the Mount. Blessed is the person who's a peacemaker. Blessed is the person who does it this way. The word blessed in the Greek means to be envied. It means to be envied. People look at you, how come things work out for you? They haven't worked out for me. Well, there's a way that we can share with people. There's a way that we can share with people that will be helpful. 1 Corinthians 13, what is love? You know, I grew up in the 50s and it was a song, what is love? And the song was five feet of heaven and a ponytail. <laughs> it's a girl. <laughs> but godly love is more than just a girl or a guy for that matter. Love has qualities, character qualities. That if you develop those, then God can use you in very powerful ways. Very powerful ways. Galatians 5. What are the fruits of God's spirit? What are the fruits of 
just the human approach to things. We want to strive to develop those qualities of God's spirit, of love and joy and peace and patience. And the way God will help us develop patience is to give us opportunities to be patient. (laughs) But I don't want to learn that way. Well, (laughs) it's the way we learn. If you want to build muscles, you can't concentrate and all of a sudden, you've got these big biceps. No, you got some ways you got to keep working against resistance. In some cases they grow, in some cases they don't. <laughs> Depending on your genetics, your body build, and so on. But there's a way that produces peace and joy and happiness. And it comes from character qualities. And if you develop those and learn how to develop them and are convinced that they really work, God's going to be able to use you to help a lot of people that are literally lost today. They have no idea because they've been told there's no such thing as right and wrong. They've been told that this book is just a bunch of stories. They've been told there is no God. They've been told there's no purpose in life. When you die, you're dead. Just like your dog dies. He's dead. But those are not right. Those are not correct. Those are not true. Let's look at a couple of reasons. A couple of other quick lessons of history. From this book, Death of Character, it says, Character achieved its greatest currency in America in the 19th century, late 1700s, early 1800s. And that character was based on specific moral qualities or moral standards. And many of those standards came from the Bible. Many of those standards came from the Bible. came across a book some time ago entitled God and America's Leaders. God and America's Leaders. It has quotes about the Bible, quotes about God from George Washington, Jefferson, Madison. In a number of cases, these men were educated in colleges that were established by churches. John Adams, I think, was a graduate of Harvard. Harvard was established by the Puritans. They had to take time to pray. They had to read the scriptures. Again, they didn't understand some of the theological dimensions that we do. But they had a set of values, a set of values that came out of this book. I think Patrick Henry and probably Jefferson were graduates of uh, William and Mary. It was established by the uh, Church of England. And they used the Bible as a textbook. Again, they didn't understand what we understand, but they understood certain values. It was down in in Barbados. We did a tour through a a home that George Washington stayed in for a couple months. He and his brother were down there. His brother had tuberculosis. And one of the doctors said, go down to Barbados. The air is cleaner there and more pure there, and uh, maybe you'll recover. We didn't recover. But Washington... When he was 14 years old, put together rules of civility. And the lady that gave us the tour had a copy of the book. When Washington was 14 years old, he copied out rules of civility and decent behavior. And most of these things are proverbs. He wasn't reading uh, Harry Potter as a 14-year-old. He wasn't reading... Uh, or watching Star Wars. He wasn't reading The Hardy Boys or Nancy Drew. He copied these from a Jesuit source. 
that listed a series of rules for behavior. Ben Franklin. And these are these are the men that were products of that of that time, that age, that culture. Ben Franklin came up with 13 virtues. And he put them in a little book, Book of Virtues. He worked on one each week. One each week. And he went through this cycle four times a year. So for 52 weeks, he was focusing one of these virtues, trying to develop that virtue. Alexander Hamilton wrote a book. Now, these are all guys about the same age, same period of time. Uh, This was their focus. They were the products of a different age. They were products of a different culture. Today, we are products of a very different culture that doesn't believe in this book. It is being told that this book is a bunch of stories. And what we're reaping today is a whirlwind. Some very different results. Coming back from Washington, D.C., I was up there for Pentecost. Again, drove down to Shenandoah Valley. I stopped at, um, again, Washington and Lee and also VMI. And I came across uh, Rex Tillerson's uh, graduation address. But uh, Robert E. Lee was buried at uh, Washington and Lee University. And going through the bookshop there, came across a book entitled Character and Valor. Character and Valor. And it's just sayings of Robert E. Lee. Some people don't like him today, but he was a man of character. Again, he was a product of his age, but he also was a man of character. When you read through the uh, index and notice what his quotes dealt with, they dealt with duty, they dealt with integrity, they dealt with dignity, they dealt with kindness, they dealt with responsibility, They dealt with courage, self-control, humility, and faith. He was on the wrong side. (laughs) But he believed that God was working out a plan and purpose, and his side lost. But they were men of character. They were men of character. Came across another book. I think this was at VMI. A book entitled Make Your Bed. Make your bed. It was written by a retired Navy admiral. And what he's talking about are some of these same qualities. He's got about ten of these. He said, number one, start your day with a task completed. He said, make your bed. (laughs) He said, you start off on the right foot. You complete a job. Remember one of the definitions of character was your car, your house, your room, your desk, your bed (laughs) reflects who you are. You develop these good habits. He talks about life is not fair, so you keep on going. Failure can make you stronger. Uh, Stand up to bullies. Give people hope. Never, never, never quit. You look at some of the other character-building books that are on the market today. I think I brought it here, the index out of one of these books. And notice the difference. Washington, Jefferson, Franklin, Lee, these guys were talking about integrity, talking about honesty. Here's a book written this year, Rules for Living, 
Stand up straight with your shoulders back. Posture is good. Treat yourself like someone you're responsible for helping, which is is not bad. Make friends with people who want the best for you. It's all about me. It's all about me. Don't let your children do anything that makes you dislike them. Look look at the, we're we're talking about night and day. Uh, Set your house in perfect order before you criticize the world. That's that's not bad. Uh, Tell the truth or at least don't lie. (laughs) Little fudge going on there. Uh, Assume that the person that you are listening to might know more than you do. which is probably wise advice. Be precise in your speech. Don't bother children when they're, are on, when they're skateboarding. The final one is pet a cat when you encounter one on the street. We're living in a different age. We're living in a different age. You know, we've rejected a number of the things that were considered fundamental values a couple hundred years ago. Again, we're reaping the results of those decisions. Well, we're at the end. Let me leave you with an assignment. Let me leave you with an assignment. I mentioned in the very beginning, character, your character, is the most important quality that you'll ever build. I would encourage you, develop a plan. Develop a plan to develop godly character. Make a list of things that you want to develop in your character. You can find that list in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. You can find it in other scriptures. But examine yourself. What am I short in? What am I coming up short in? You can also, if you're courageous, ask God to help you see what you need to work on. But to develop a plan and then go to work on these things. Go to work on these things. Read about biblical and historical people with character. Read about Esther. Read about Moses. Read about Jesus Christ. Read about David. Strive to become a godly person of character. Because our reward that we read about in 1 John 3, verses 1 to 4, is to actually become like God to think, to act, and to function like God. So strive to develop perfect, righteous character because you're going to be given the opportunity one day if we do these things. If we build that righteous character, we're going to be given an opportunity to literally change the world by teaching the principles from the Bible, by sharing the lessons of history, and by showing people there really is a better way to go.